Welcome to Public Policy This Week, a well-rounded weekly discussion of policy issues that frame today's American experience. Good morning. It's Friday, July 7th, and you've joined us for Public Policy This Week on KYMN Radio. Public Policy This Week runs the gamut on policy subjects, from neighborhood concerns to municipal, state, and national level issues. Everything is fair game. Our objective is civil, thoughtful dialogue about important public policy issues that convey ideas and solutions to move society forward. I'm Steve Poskanser, Professor of Political Science and President Emeritus at Carleton College. And today on Public Policy This Week, we're going to review the Supreme Court's just-completed 2022-23 term. My guest for this important show is Professor Alan Rosenstein of the University of Minnesota Law School. Alan is an expert in constitutional law and cybersecurity law and a leading voice on broader issues of law and technology. Faithful listeners of this program will recall that Alan and I spent a lively hour back in December previewing major cases coming before the court this year. And now that the dust has settled, or at least begun to settle, we're going to focus on several of the most prominent decisions that were just handed down. Today, we get to discuss what this newest layer of constitutional law means and also see how good our predictive skills are. Alan, thanks so much for joining me today. Very grateful to have you here. Thanks so much for having me back. Great. Let's start with what I think is probably the most prominent and controversial holding this year, and that's the case of Students for Fair Admissions versus the University of North Carolina and its companion case, Students for Fair Admissions against Harvard College. In this case, CIFA, that's the acronym for Students for Fair Admissions, uh, was challenging race-based affirmative action in college admissions, asserting that UNC, which of course is a public university, was violating the 14th Amendment's Equal Protection Clause, and that Harvard, a private university, was violating Title VI of the Civil Rights Act, which prohibits discrimination on the basis of race, color, or national origin by any educational program that receives any money from the federal government. The court ruled six to three for CIFA and against the universities. Chief Justice Roberts wrote for the majority, and there are two powerful dissents written respectively by Justices Sotomayor and Jackson. The majority held that, quote, Harvard and UNC admissions programs lack sufficiently focused and measurable objectives warranting the use of race, unavoidably employ race in a negative manner, involve racial stereotyping, and lack meaningful endpoints. Alan, let's start with this basic question. Were you surprised by the result in this case? Not even remotely. I think the writing was on the wall on this case for several years now, frankly, certainly ever since the court developed its 6-3 conservative supermajority. Um, I think the conservatives are very unsympathetic to this policy. I think they've been unsympathetic for a long time. They've just been itching to overturn uh, the affirmative action precedents that have been set over the last several decades. And unlike with the Dobbs case, the case that uh, overruled Roe versus Wade, um, although this case is certainly controversial, it's not nearly as controversial as that case was, because in this case, the Supreme Court is actually not out of step with 
public opinion. Um, in you know, recent polling, and of course, it depends a little bit on how you ask the question, but I, I think that most you know, folks who do this polling would agree that affirmative action, uh, is particularly race-based affirmative action in higher education, is just not popular in the United States with majorities of uh, actually all races, um, not just uh, white people and Asian people who you would expect to be the least sympathetic, uh, but also uh, Latinos. And also, I think either a majority or darn near close to a majority of Black Americans actually don't support this policy. So I think this is a situation in which, although elite opinion is very much against the Supreme Court uh, and has criticized the Supreme Court quite harshly, I think the justices can uh, not worry that much about public backlash. Uh, because again, unlike Roe versus Wade, which although of course also very controversial, was fundamentally supported by a majority of Americans, affirmative action uh, was not. No, I think you're right. And I was not surprised by this decision either. You know, I saw data today that has 52% of those asked, you know, support this holding, 32% unhappy with the holding. Again, how you ask the questions matters, but there's not likely to be the same political consensus. Here's the practical question I'll start with. Is this the death knell for race-based affirmative action in college admissions? What do you think? That is a very interesting question. And I, I, I'd actually love to hear your perspective as a, a former college president and a, a president of a very selective and elite college where these issues actually matter. I think one thing we forget is that affirmative action is really only relevant for a tiny, tiny slice of higher institutions, of, of higher ed institutions at the, at the very top, uh, of which Carlton is a, is a perfect example. Um, yeah, I, I would say they're mostly dead, but it kind of it kind of depends. It's it's a bit like that Monty Python parrot joke. Um, you know, on the one hand, it's very clear that uh, um, admitting students based on their race, even if it is one factor among many, is not permitted um, on a, the diversity rationale that has been the standard rationale ever since the Backey decision back in the 1970s. The idea being that um, race based admissions is permissible because it contributes to a more diverse student body and that's better for education. That's clearly done. Um, but there are two, I think, I'm not sure I call them loopholes, but two alternative methods that uh, we'll see play out um, as universities try to respond to this uh, decision. One is the possibility that instead of selecting students on the basis of race or of having that be a factor, they will select students on the basis of um, having overcome disadvantaged conditions. And in fact, and this is, I think, probably the uh, you know two paragraphs of the opinion that are going to be poured over by general counsel's offices the most in the next six months, in Chief, Justice's, in, in Chief Justice Robert's opinion, he says basically this. He says, look, you can't admit people because of their race, but that doesn't mean you can't admit people because in their particular situation, they have experienced a disadvantage. And they have overcome that in a way that shows that they're particularly impressive. And if that happens to correlate with race, that's not necessarily surprising, nor necessarily objectionable. So you can't admit a student you know, because, let's say, they're Black. But if the student in their college essay can credibly show that for their specific life trajectory, they have overcome certain barriers that they would not have had to address or deal with had it not been for their race, that's perfectly permissible. Now, 
Chief Justice Roberts also makes clear that you can't just use that as a loophole around this opinion, right? If we find that you're just um, basically admitting everyone who says, mentions racial disadvantage, and it's very clear that all you're trying to do is replicate the previous race-based admissions policy, that's that's no good. Um, but there's enough of, of daylight there that certainly college is going to try to do that. And while there, I'm sure will be controversies and lawsuits, that will itself be a very fact-based uh, litigation. Now, we can have a separate conversation about whether or not having even more focus on college essays, uh, admissions essays is a good thing, and whether you really want to put um, groups from underrepresented minorities in the position of having to um, play up and really focus on their disadvantage. There's sort of questions about whether that's frankly good for anyone, but that's a separate question. So that, that that's one option. Another option, and this is something that I think we're going to see more of, um, is colleges returning to the original justification for, for affirmative action. Um, what I think people don't appreciate is that the diversity-based rationale for affirmative action and, and the, the D in DEI, the diversity in DEI, is kind of an accident that no one actually likes. Um, when affirmative action was first instituted, it was very clear that the reason it was instituted was because um, the at the time, overwhelmingly white majority in the United States was trying to recognize that for centuries, both with slavery and then Jim Crow, they had subordinated black Americans. And that because of that, it was a moral imperative to rectify that wrong. And therefore, affirmative action was justified not because it improved the diversity of the class for students. It was because it was a way of trying to make amends for hundreds of years of just the most brutal treatment. Um, that, because of the vagaries of the Supreme Court in the 1970s, was not the basis upon which affirmative action was formally approved of in the Bakke decision. And because of that, colleges had to kind of grit their teeth and deal with this diversity-based rationale that, frankly, no one is happy with and no one's been happy with for several decades, and again, for reasons we can get into. Um, but now that that's off the table, I think it gives colleges an opportunity to just say, look, um, uh, uh, you know, if if we're taking you, Chief Justice Roberts, and we're taking you, Justice Thomas, at your word and your opinions, where you recognize the stark legacy of, of slavery and Jim Crow and disenfranchisement, um, then there should be possible an affirmative action scheme, um, not based on race, but based on an actual historical pattern of discrimination. And so here, you might find renewed focus on what's called ADOS, A-D-O-S, or uh, uh, American descendants of slavery. So this is a specific group, obviously Black Americans, but not just Black Americans generally. So not including, for example, immigrants from the 20th century, but people who can show that they descend from enslaved people. Maybe you could probably add Native Americans to that list. They also obviously had some very serious disadvantage um, throughout American history. And if you could have a, a set-aside program just for them, that would actually not be a program based on race. It'd be a program based on a subset of a particular race that happens to be able to tie its history back to a particular event in American history. And I suspect that actually there would be plenty of conservatives who would be okay with a very narrowly tailored program um, uh, in, in that basis. Now, that would not solve the diversity problem. There would not be enough, frankly, of those individuals, I think, to get you to the diversity that colleges want. It would totally not apply, I think, at all to Latino Americans. And so that diversity issue would not be dealt with. Um, but I, I would not be surprised, especially for descendants of slavery, because that's such an obvious moral failing um, that that you will see um, 
uh, policies there. And I, I think those policies actually would be perfectly constitutional uh, under this opinion, because again, they're actually not based on race. You know, it's interesting. You know, when I teach constitutional law, and you probably do the same thing, I often point out to students the difference between viewing the 14th Amendment as concerned with anti-classification of people as opposed to anti-subordination of people. And certainly, you know, descendants of slaves and disadvantaged folks in society have arguably been very subordinated against. The majority opinion in this case quotes a famous dissent by Justice Harlan in the now infamous case of Plessy versus Ferguson for the proposition that, quote, our Constitution is colorblind and neither knows nor tolerates classes among citizens. Here's the question that I'm struggling with. Is the Constitution's goal colorblindness or is the Constitution's goal equality of opportunity? If it's the former, this opinion certainly rings very true with that. We're not classifying people on the basis of race. On the other hand, if the goal of the 14th Amendment's Equal Protection Clause was to create opportunity and to struggle against those who have been subordinated in the past, where are we right now? So the question of whether or not the Constitution is a colorblind document is a very controversial and very vexatious one. Um but I also think it actually might not be central to this case. So let me explain what I mean. So, so on the question of what the Constitution is, um, well, that depends on a lot of factors. First, it depends on what do you think the correct way of reading the Constitution is. If you think the Constitution is an evolving document, then, well, the Constitution is kind of whatever we think it is. And there are plenty of people who think that what it means to treat someone fairly is to treat them equally and other people who think that it means to treat them equitably. And um, that's a that's a big debate and not one we're going to settle here. E- even if you think that, okay, well, the Constitution actually doesn't mean what we think it means. It means what the framers of the relevant provision meant when they wrote it down. It's still not entirely clear what the Constitution meant, uh, what the 14th Amendment meant in the, uh, uh, in the 1860s when it was uh, enacted and ratified. On the one hand, the text of the Constitution does not refer um, you know, to it, 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 it seems to be fairly colorblind in, in how it's written. On the other hand, it's pretty clear that the same Congress that enacted the 14th Amendment also enacted things like the Freedmen's Bureau, which specifically helped Black Americans. Now, there are arguments in reverse that said, actually, that was not based on race. It was, ba- it was based on people who had just been enslaved, and it just happens to be that all those people were Black. And so you can get back into these sort of historiographic debates. But I I think the bigger point is that I'm not sure that's super relevant for this specific case. And and the reason is, and it comes back to the fundamental flaw, I think, that these policies and affirmative action programs have had in higher education, which again, I I think that proponents of affirmative action would agree with, which is that the diversity rationale just is not a good one. Um, And the reason it's not a good one is because, A, um, if you're going to disadvantage people on the basis of their race, which I think it's pretty clear, for example, Harvard did with respect to Asian applicants. Um, You better have something really weighty on the other hand. And diversity, it's just a little lame, frankly, relative to something more uh, weighty, like trying to remedy past discrimination. No, you're absolutely right that that's where we ended up because the other alternatives, you know, role models, correcting for imbalances in, you know, professionals, doctors, lawyers, or even trying to correct for present effects of past discrimination. The court wasn't buying those. So you're left with the diversity rationale in the 70s. It, 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 exactly. And so I think the diversity rationale is always a little weak. 
Um, the other thing is, if you're going to do the diversity rationale, you have to do it well. And it's not even clear that the that the colleges were doing that. So, you know, sure, the college was creating in some ways a diverse student body based on, to be perfectly frank, um, based almost on skill and color more than anything else, because e- even just the way that these racial categories are constructed are, are kind of meaningless in, in, in its own way. So even on its own merits, it wasn't great. But what about socioeconomic diversity, right? And the, 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 the poorly kept secret is that these colleges were admitting people overwhelmingly of the upper middle class because these colleges, while technically nonprofits, are trying to make some money as well, uh, not to mention a lack of ideological diversity. So I think the problem for the court was that you know, not only was diversity not that compelling of an interest relative to the costs of harming certain applicants based on their race, but it wasn't even done terribly well. And the reason I mention that is because, again, I think going forward, um, when colleges try to, with more tightly scoped affirmative action programs, target people who were seri- you know, who, who descended from, let's say, enslaved people, right, to give that example. Um, I think that, or I at least hope that courts recognize the moral weight of that interest and then don't have to get too bogged down in, is the Constitution colorblind or not? Because whether it is colorblind or not, I think most of us can agree that there should be a carve out. Um, for people that can clearly show that they are victims of centuries of very intentional disadvantage. You know, I want to hope you're right. I'm a little less sanguine. I think when this majority says colorblind, they really mean colorblind and that their willingness on occasion to support people who are still suffering from discrimination is much more limited to when it's the same actor who discriminated against you a while ago is still discriminating against you now, which is going to be a lot harder to show that, you know, Georgetown or Vanderbilt is the party that discriminated. But we're going to see what happens. One last question on this case. What do you think are the implications of this decision for realms beyond college admissions? What's this mean for, you know, target of opportunity, diversity, faculty hiring? What's it mean for the corporate America that also has had affirmative action programs? I think all of those are going to come under a lot more scrutiny. And part of that is because there are some actual doctrinal takeaways that transfer over to other domains. So, you know, if if diversity is no longer the compelling government interest that can satisfy the strict scrutiny that is required to uphold a program that discriminates on the basis of race, um, well, then diversity is not a compelling interest. That's the same D in DEI. Um, So uh, now you look at all the other places where diversity is being used as the justification. And you say, well, if it's not a compelling interest in this area, why should it be compelling interest in that area? Um, Now, to be clear, it doesn't map one-to-one. There's a big difference between what college admissions officers do when they select a class versus what a faculty does when it hires a new uh, faculty member. You know, the faculty hiring is much more individualized. And so it's much harder to suss out exactly why someone was hired or not and all that sort of stuff. Um, But, uh, you know, certainly... um, uh, I think that plaintiffs will be emboldened, uh, both because of that doctrinal carryover and because, well, now there's a Supreme Court that they know is pretty um, uh, sympathetic to their concerns um, and will will challenge a, a, a lot of this. And even if they don't, there are going to be a lot of general counsels in universities and in corporate America saying, look, we, we don't want a lawsuit, you know, so we need to do a top-down review of our 
of our hiring practices. Um, and, um, you know, I think, I think, I think I'll just leave it there. I, I suspect, you know, just for example, in the faculty context, faculty that have gotten really used to having a pretty open hand with how they hire are going to now have to jump through some, some more hoops and traditionally, you know, in the past, those hoops have generally been on the, the, the quote unquote left with, you know, diversity statements and things like that. I think now there can be a lot of hoops from the right, making sure that when you're doing a faculty search and it's an open search, you're, you're not taking into account things that your lawyers don't want you taking into account because of litigation risk. I think you're right. You're listening to Public Policy This Week on KYMN Radio, AM 1080 and FM 95.1 from our studios in Northfield, Minnesota. I'm Steve Poskanzer, and I'm talking to Professor Alan Rosenstein of the University of Minnesota Law School about the Supreme Court's just completed term. Alan, you and I could go on all day about the uh, CIFA, Harvard, and UNC cases, but let's shift and talk a little bit about Moore versus Harper. This is a case about the independent state legislature doctrine. It began when a former iteration of the North Carolina Supreme Court tossed out a congressional election map that had been adopted by the conservative North Carolina legislature, holding that this kind of partisan gerrymandering violated the North Carolina Constitution. But the U.S. Supreme Court was asked to decide whether or not that state court's ruling violated something called the Election Clause of the U.S. Constitution. And the Election Clause provides that, quote, the manner of holding elections for senators and representatives shall be prescribed in each state by the legislature thereof. The court ruled six to three, for the position of the North Carolina Supreme Court, and Chief Justice Roberts again wrote for the majority, and in his opinion, the court held that state courts retain the authority at all times to apply state constitutional restraints when legislatures act under the power that's conferred upon them under the election clause. Or more precisely, the court said that when a state legislature carries out its constitutional power to prescribe rules regulating federal elections, it acts both as a lawmaking body created and bound by its state constitution and as the entity assigned particular authority by the federal constitution. Both constitutions restrain the legislature's exercise of power. Trying to explain the independent state legislature doctrine is a little complicated, but why don't we start by asking the same question? Were you surprised by the result in this case? So again, I, I was not particularly surprised, and and I don't claim any particular clairvoyance. I don't think most court watchers were, were super surprised in this case based on how oral argument went. It was very clear that there were not going to be five votes for what is sometimes called the maximalist position, uh, which is the idea that when the uh, Constitution says legislature, it means literally just the legislature, uh, no matter what the state Supreme Court or the Constitution of the state says. The question, and I think what people were wondering, was ultimately whether the court was going to um, ultimately even uh, decide on this case, because in the intervening time, the uh, the Supreme Court in North Carolina changed, it had a different decision. And so the specific issue that was driving the case had gone away. And when this happens, which happens from time to time, sometimes the Supreme Court will dismiss the case as, as, as moot, um, basically, because there's no issue anymore um but in this case the that court was the bet i was going to make in this was case. that yeah if i if i so you're two for two and i'm one for two on this one i thought they'd dodge this one i i i tend to you know the, the, i'll say the reason i didn't think they wanted to dodge this one was because 
I think that there were plenty of justices who wanted to nip the maximalist theory in the bud. They knew that these issues could come up again. And issues of standing and ripeness and mootness, these kinds of questions are notoriously malleable uh, in, in the court. And so um, there was always a chance. But in, in the end, the court did what I think most of us expected, which is to say, look, um, this is a good vehicle for deciding this really important issue. This is actually something where there needs to be a lot of clarity going forward, just given how unpleasant, let's say, uh, U.S. elections have become. Um, and ultimately, they 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 did that, and they've provided a, a lot, though though not full clarity, as I'm sure we'll talk about in a little bit. And that's where I was going to go next. I mean, did the courts stick a fork in the independent state legislature theory, or? Is the maximalist version of it dead, but minimalist versions still float around? I, I think that's right. The maximalist version is dead, but the minimalist version floats around. And just as a reminder, what the minimalist version says is that um, uh, although, generally speaking, federal courts will treat state Supreme Court interpretations of state constitutions as binding, if the federal court thinks that the state Supreme Court has really straight, has has interpreted its own law in a way that just cannot be um, harmonized with basic principles of adequate judging, right? Basic competent judging. Then the federal court can um, enter in, step in, and overturn the state court judgment. And this is important because this is actually what happened in Bush versus Gore, the, the decision that ended the 2000 election, and particularly in a concurrence written by then Chief Justice Rehnquist, um, he argued that it was appropriate for the court to overturn the Florida State Supreme Court's decision that would have uh, that would have continued the counting, um, because in his view, the Florida State Supreme Court was uh, you know not acting as a as a court. He basically accused them at that point of acting as as you know partisan actors. Um, and Chief Justice, and and interestingly, Bush versus Gore has never been cited in a majority opinion um, in the intervening twenty three years. The Supreme Court is with no one. I think they all recognized it was their finest moment until They'd this like opinion it to go away. They They'd need like to resolve to that issue, but they're not proud of it. Yeah, well, un until today or until this term, when Chief Justice Roberts specifically cited that concurrence, um, basically writing Rehnquist approach into law. Now, the question then becomes, okay, well, what does it mean for the practical purposes for the court to give itself that, uh, I'm not sure, escape hatch is the, is the, is the right word, maybe backdoor into state constitutional law might, might be the, the, the right analogy here. And the answer is we don't know, of course. And this is a, a common problem, something I tell my students every year. You don't actually know what a Supreme Court opinion means until 10 years later. When a future Supreme Court opinion, yeah, if that, uh, uh, when a future Supreme Court opinion tells us what it meant, in this is a good case in point, we needed to wait 23 years, as it turns out, to know what the presidential effect of Bush versus Gore would be. Um, I think reading between the lines, it's pretty clear that the Chief Justice is trying to signal to lower courts that stepping in to overturn a state Supreme Court opinion uh, is not something to be done lightly, and that state Supreme Court should get a lot of deference but not total deference. And we'll just have to see how this plays out. And, you know, 2024 may be another opportunity for, for this to come up. I think you're right. Let, let's talk a little bit more about the implications of this decision, especially when you consider 
the outcome in the other reapportionment related cases this year, especially Allen versus Milligan, which is where the Alabama 2021 congressional redistricting plan was ultimately found to violate the Voting Rights Act. You know, is there can we extrapolate at all from Moore versus Harper into how future reapportionment debates, particularly race based reapportionment debates, are likely to be viewed by the courts? I, I just I think we don't know. Right. Because the problem is, you know, the, the these issues are are, are fundamentally getting at, at different things. Right. One is getting at whether a particular uh, uh, le- state legislative action sort of violates either federal law or the federal constitution when it comes to racial discrimination. Um, and, and here, you know, you mentioned Allen versus Milligan. I think it's actually relatively surprising that the court, uh, given the sort of colorblindness rhetoric that uh, Chief Justice Roberts, who in a previous case actually gutted a big part of the Voting Rights Act, um, surprising that that uh, the court came out the way it did. Um, the, the the independent state legislature doctrine is is really um, uh, about what you do when there's a fight between the legislature of a state and the state court. Um, does the federal court get to weigh in on the side of the legislature or not? Um, and, and that's a, a quite different. Uh, that's a quite different case. That's um, tends to be more relevant, I think, after elections uh, than necessarily before elections when redistricting issues come up. Um, and so we'll, I think we'll just have to wait to see if in 2024 you get a situation where you you know you have a close enough election in one of the states that the legislature decides to do something um, that the state Supreme Court disagrees with in a way that is meaningful, which is to say it could actually switch the outcome of an election, so it matters, um, and then to see if a federal court takes the bait um, and decides to use this proviso in Moore versus Harper to inject itself in on the side of the legislature, at which point we're, 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 off, we're off to the races uh, and the Supreme Court will, will no doubt have to come in and explain exactly what they meant in Moore versus Harper. But if I'm reading you right, maximalist versions of the independent state legislature theory seem dead. But, you know, the, the notion about how active courts can be in second guessing what legislatures do in the states may some room there. Yeah. And specifically, not not so much how active they can be in, in second guessing legislatures, but um, whether or not federal courts can police state courts interpretation of their own constitutions. That's that's the question. Excellent. You're listening to Public Policy This Week on KYMN Radio, AM 1080 and FM 95.1 from Northfield, Minnesota. I'm Steve Poskanzer, and I'm talking to Professor Alan Rosenstein about the outcome of the Supreme Court's just-completed 2022-23 term. Alan, let's talk next about 303 Creative versus Alanis. Here, the owner of a graphic design firm refused to design websites for same-sex weddings in Colorado because she believes that same-sex marriage conflicts with God's will. She challenged the Colorado statute that prohibited businesses that are open to the public from discriminating against gay people or announcing their intent to do so. The court focused really exclusively on the free speech aspect of this case, rather than the free exercise of religion argument that also could have been made out there. And it held six to three for the web designer. Justice Gorsuch wrote the majority opinion and the court's three liberal justices, that's Jackson, Kagan, and Sotomayor, were in dissent. 
the court approached this in absolutely classic free speech terms, relying heavily on established precedent that the government can't make an individual propound a point of view that's fundamentally contrary to their beliefs. And while recognizing that Colorado and other states are generally free to apply their public accommodations laws, including provisions that would protect LGBTQ plus persons to a vast array of businesses, the court nevertheless declared that public accommodation statutes can sweep too broadly when deployed to compel speech. Now, I will say I was not surprised by this result, okay? This one I think I got right when I predicted. How about you? I, I also was not surprised. You know, the I, I will say I the, the one thing that I think was notable about the opinion was, uh, as you pointed out in your description, that the court really went out of its way not to talk about the religion aspect of it and really framed this entirely as a free speech case. Now, obviously, it was obvious the religious backdrop. No one was trying to hide that. Uh, but this is this is a case about uh, compelled speech, not a case about the free exercise of a religion. And I think I think that's uh, notable. Um, and and I I I say almost a attempt by the majority to um, be a little more. Um, Maybe inclusive is not the right word given this context, uh, but to throw a bit of a bone um, to to folks who are worried about the uh, the sense that this court is kind of particularly solicitous to um, religious freedom claims, especially from conservative Christians. I'm going to come back to the the question about the content of this decision, but uh, you made a point that I've been wrestling with myself. You know, if in a case like this, that free speech claims alone could block the operation of a public accommodation law, what's the outcome going to be in a case where a free exercise of religion clause is literally layered on top of that? I mean, I guess I asked this question because I think, and I'm pretty sure you'd agree with me on this, in recent years, the court has been singularly protective of almost any claim that says it is a free exercise claim. You know, it's our high school football coach in Washington that can pray at the field. It's, you know, programs for, you know, parochial schools in Maine, religiously affiliated schools in Maine being able to participate in state programs. The courts tended to rely almost always protecting free exercise. You layer free exercise on top of free speech, it seems pretty unassailable. What do you think? Or am I reading too much into that? No, that so that I don't think you're necessarily reading too much into that. I think that's certainly one way of interpreting what the court did. They're sort of holding free exercise in reserve for when they really need it. The other way is they're signaling they don't want to deal with this as a free exercise issue, right? They want to say, look, your free exercise, if if this if there's an expressive dimension to this case. We're going to interpret it primarily through the lens of free expression. We're not going to think about it in terms of uh, 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 free speech. Uh, we're not going to think about it in terms of freedom of religion. Um, and therefore, we're going to try to sort of push away some of the more um, controversial aspects of that jurisprudence. Uh, but again, this is an example where we're, we, don't, we, don't, uh, we don't know until we know. Well, I like your somewhat more optimistic reading than mine. Okay. I mean... Practically speaking, okay, by the logic of the 303 Creative Holding, okay, if a website designer could refuse to serve 
a gay couple because of their free speech. You can't compel them to use their artistic creativity to make a website for them. Could a website designer lawfully refuse to create a website for an interracial couple? So here I think it's very important to clarify exactly what the holding of 303 Creative is. And I think here the the, the media has not done a great job. Um, it is widely reported that the holding of 303 Creative is that the First Amendment allows a business to refuse service to, in this case, a gay couple. That's actually not what the opinion says. What the opinion says is that First Amendment allows a business to, in that part of its business, which is expressive, not to express opinions with which that business disagrees. And so in the context of a business run by a conservative Christian who has religious objections to gay marriage, that part of her business that is creating expressive products to express how great this gay marriage is, that cannot be compelled. But if the gay couple went and said, we're opening a pizza parlor, we'd like to sell pizza, we think you're a great website designer, she can't say, no, I'm not going to serve you because you're gay. And she publicly said throughout the whole course of litigation that she will design commercial websites for anyone. Yeah, and 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 that's very very important because um, again, I think it's very important that we we recognize that this opinion is more limited, right? Um, and so, to give your example, if the question is, you know, this person, let's say, is um, uh, uh, you know, so to get to your question, which is, um, could by the logic of this opinion, this individual, uh, this business, not create a wedding for an interracial couple, a, we- a wedding website? I think the answer is, well, it depends on what she's being asked to do as part of that wedding website, right? Um, it, it, and here we get to the the heart of the opinion, which is, what does it mean for an activity to be expressive? Um, and unfortunately, the court doesn't really tell us. It's a bit of an I know it when I see it quality. Um, so you know, if, if the request from the clients is a wedding that celebrates not just a wedding website that not just celebrates the wedding per se, but the fact that it is an interracial wedding and that's really good because this is a melting pot and et cetera, et cetera. I, I do think actually that this opinion would allow the individual to say, I don't believe in interracial. I think interracial marriages are bad for society. I don't want to be part of this. Um, uh, but it would not apply to, um, I think, just a uh, well, he, what it definitely would not apply to is the the pizza. You know, we're making it, we're starting a pizza right. restaurant, Absolutely. example. Right. And 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 what I'm not sure whether it would apply to, and I think this would be super fact specific. If it, like just like a generic wedding website, mm-hmm. um, which just just about how great the wedding is, happens to have a picture of this interracial couple, but doesn't talk about the interracialness of the wedding itself. That that's that I think that's where the um, close call would be on how this uh, opinion would be interpreted going forward. You know, one of the things that I thought was really interesting in this opinion was the way the majority and the dissent, they were like totally different planes. They're just talking right by each other. You know, Gorsuch focused in the way that you and I have just been talking about on protecting free speech. And the dissenters, their opinion is all about the legitimacy and the necessary passage of anti-discrimination laws. Um, the dissent kind of argued here that the law in question was only going after conduct not speech, and that the act of discrimination has never constituted protected expression under the First Amendment. What do you think of that argument? Obviously, it didn't command a majority. So look, in in terms of the fact that the two sides are talking past each other, I mean, 
that's what they're always doing in a Supreme Court opinion. <laughs> and that's not because they're bad lawyers or because they're dumb or they don't get it. It's because issues don't get to the Supreme Court if they're easy. They get to the Supreme Court because, um, you know, in a um, reasonably mature, well-functioning democracy like ours, which again, despite its flaws, is you know, fundamentally, I think, a decent liberal society, when things get up to the Supreme Court is because there's a clash of legitimate values. And if you're going to get a split at Supreme Court, it's because, well, you know, one one side got to five or six in this case, um, and the others didn't. So of course, the side, you know, each side goes with their strongest argument. And so you end up with this often talking past each other uh, equality, right? The majority is right that expression is important, needs to be protected. The dissent is right that um, the uh, discrimination laws are important. And Life is a matter of trade-offs, and there's no way of getting around that. Um, you know, in terms of the dissent-specific argument that such and such is conduct versus speech, the conduct versus speech question is one of the central bedeviling issues in First Amendment law. It just comes up over and over and over again. It's so hard to draw a line between conduct and speech, and. I will say um, it's one of these issues where I just distrust anyone who has an opinion about it in, in the sense in the sense that um, it's just so easy to end up with um, kind of ends based reasoning where, you know, frankly, no one, I think, has a particularly principled position on what is conduct versus speech. You know, the, the stuff they like is speech because then it gets first amendment protections. The stuff they don't like is conduct because it doesn't. Um, and so it's not like I criticize the dissent for making a conduct speech distinction. It's more that I don't think that that argument has much greater weight than what is the fundamental argument, which is just a trade-off that in our constitutional system, we have delegated to nine people in black robes for better or for worse um, between, in this case, you have this question of expressive rights, and you also have this question of not being treated poorly because you're gay or a minority or you know, whatever the case may be. Right. I mean, you know, I did a moot court on this with my constitutional law course and that choice of values, you know, we value free expression. We value anti-discrimination. We value them both. OK, you know, which one has to prevail when they are fundamentally at odds with each other. And that's the role of the court. In this case, we got their answer. Uh, a question about the implications of this one, and then we'll take another fast break. Um, you know, some commentators are extrapolating from this decision to say that, you know, we had seen in general years, in recent years, a number of holdings that seemed to advance the cause of LGBTQIA plus rights. You know, you had gay marriage upheld in Obergefell. You had project protection of transgender persons under Title VII employment law in the Bostock decision recently. Is this really a retreat back? Or is this case likely five years from now to be viewed as just sort of an interesting blip while a general trend moves forward? So I, I hope you'll have me back on the show in five years because this, this would be an interesting prediction to, to make and to evaluate retrospectively. My gut is that it's the latter, not the former, that this is not the beginning of a meaningful rollback in protections for sexual and gender minorities, um, but that this is rather a... Um, I wouldn't say one-off. I think it's going to be an important case, and I think it will limit the scope of anti-discrimination law, but it's not going to unbend the arc of history, uh, as they say, and that this case is um, uh, a little more fact-bound than people appreciate, which is to say that um, that I think in this case, the justices, and not just the justices, but there are sort of plenty of 
folks kind of on the sort of libertarian left who also, despite being very sympathetic to the to the to the you know gay couple, also were a little skeptical of the Colorado anti-discrimination law, who thought this was a bit of overreach, which is to say there are lots of people who can design your wedding website. Um, it's not obvious why you need this specific person to do it. Um, uh, and that, you know, if this case had come up in a different context where we're not talking about wedding websites, but we're talking about to give the sort of classic public accommodation example, a ho- you know, the only hotel in the countryside that you have to stop on overnight, which is where a lot of the um, original discrimination cases came out of the 50s, it would have come out differently. Um, so, you know, I, I, I think that w- when you are comparing on the one hand, the kind of titanic decisions of Obergefell uh, or of Bostock versus a decision that again, we don't know how it's going to spin out, but certainly right now is not going to meaningfully, I think, change the life trajectory of of gay couples. Um, I, I think it's very far, far too early to say that this is a uh, sign that the Supreme Court is about to go rampage through uh, through gay rights decisions. But but again, right? I, I should be epistemically yeah. humble, and let's let's talk again in five years. No, I, I think you're right. I mean, you know, the the Colorado law is a very idiosyncratic complicated it also had provisions about what you could post and very vague language it would have been possible to strike this law down on those grounds as well i also at least maybe too sanguine but i don't think this is going to see a major retreat i i agree with you um you're listening to public policy this week on kwmn radio from northfield minnesota AM 1080, FM 95.1, and we're talking about the Supreme Court's decisions of this 22-23 term with Professor Alan Rosenstein of the University of Minnesota Law School. Alan, we just got about 10 minutes left. I want to talk about any other holdings this term that you think are of particular import, and one leapt out at both of us, uh, Biden versus Nebraska. This is the case where the Supreme Court held that the Secretary of Education did not have the authority under a piece of legislation called the HEROES Act to enact President Biden's debt cancellation plan. Once again, this was a six to three decision with the conservative bloc prevailing. Uh, Beyond the obvious importance of this case to those who owe student debts, which now need to be repaid in full, uh, this case concerns the limits of Congress's ability to delegate power to the executive branch. And that's a body of law that is often known as the major questions doctrine. Can you explain the meaning and the impact of this case to our listeners? Yeah, and I, I will say, I, I think this is the most important case this term. It's, I think it's actually even more important than the affirmative action cases because of its potential, the potential of this doctrine to sort of ramify through basic foundational ideas of government structure in a way that honestly we have not had to litigate since quite literally before the new deal um the major questions doctrine is um actually not a doctrine about what congress can do it's about a doctrine about what congress has to say when it wants to do something and in particular the idea is that um it's a way it's a rule that courts apply when they interpret statutes lots of statutes are in the form of you know we congress think such and such as a policy problem. And so we're going to delegate power to some agency or to the president to solve this problem in the appropriate way. Um, and that's how a lot of Congress congressional statutes are, are written. That's the foundation of the modern administrative state. What the major question doctrine tells courts to do is to read those delegations narrowly. 
Or in other words, that um, if the question, if, if you're reading a statute and trying to figure out, did Congress allow, when it wrote the statute, did it meant to allow the president or the agency to do some action? If that action is, quote unquote, a major question, if it's a big deal, and literally, unfortunately, it's hard to specify what that is more than just big deal, um, then Congress has to be very clear, has to be explicit when it uh, writes that law down. So it's not a limitation on Congress's ability to delegate. It's a requirement that if Congress wants to delegate a, quote, major question to the executive branch, it must do so explicitly. The problem, of course, is that no one can define what major question actually is, and no one can define what explicit actually is. And so this is another one of these, I know it when I see it. And in fact, one of the courses that I teach at the University of Minnesota Law School every year is a course on the foundations of statutory interpretation and the regulatory state. And I think this issue more than any other just bedevils my students um, because they don't know how to apply this. And I can't tell them how to because I'm not sure how to either. Now, there are lots of these, I know it when I see it tests in constitutional law. But uh, what makes this one particularly destabilizing is that this applies to the fundamental structure of the U.S. government. So much of what the administrative agencies do is based on fairly vague delegations of power from Congress. And so when you have this limitation on the one hand, and on the other hand, you can't even define this limitation in advance as to what it means, you just left with this kind of throwing up of the hands and not knowing um, what uh, what is going on. And so I think that this is why this case, beyond just the immediate implication for student loan, is so potentially profound. Yeah. You know, to me, this case seems very related to West Virginia versus EPA, you know, a year or so ago, where I felt I saw the court really trying to kind of, if the legislature is going to delegate power, you got to do it in a very precise, very clear way. I think one of the problems with this is Congress has such trouble passing legislation to begin with to get Congress to also agree on exactly what the parameters are of what they're delegating seems doubly complicated right now. That's right. And I'd say the only ray of hope, I think, in this opinion is a is, is a, is a, a, a part of what Justice Barrett wrote in, in her opinion, in which she as she's sort of thinking through what this doctrine is. She points out uh, in I think very clear ways that the doctrine can only be justified as a claim about what Congress actually wants, as a claim that Congress actually wants courts to read its statutes very narrowly when it comes to major questions. And the reason I think this is a good idea is because if this is what the conservatives end up believing about the major questions doctrine, at some point, intellectual honesty will just require them to realize the obvious fact that Congress loves delegating that there's nothing Congress loves more than passing the buck to the executive branch. And so maybe, and here I'm being super optimistic in a way that frankly, I don't believe, but you know, I like to, I like to smile when I can, um, that uh, maybe this will self-limit over the next few years, because if it doesn't, I just, I don't know how the government frankly can keep functioning. That, that's my worry as well. So let me ask one last question. I know we're starting to get a little late on our time here. Um, I want to talk with you a little bit about how you're viewing current court dynamics. You know, this is favorite pundit game at the end of every term. Uh, but, you know, where's the power lie right now? Would you agree Adam Liptak from the New York Times had a big assessment earlier this week that the court remains deeply conservative, but much more in tune right now with the fitfully incremental approach that he ascribes to Chief Justice Roberts, 
who is much more attentive to the court's legitimacy than Liptak thinks they are with the take no prisoners approach that he identifies with Justice Thomas. You know, basically Liptak's bottom line here is, you know, this was Robert's year, not Thomas's year on the court. And the court may have swung a tiny bit more back towards the center right as opposed to the more activist right. What's your gut tell you here? I think that's I think that's good as a, as a first cut. I think the problem with that argument, not that I have a better one, but the problem with evaluating that argument is we don't have access to the internal deliberations. And so we don't know why the court has swung back a little bit to the center, right? Is it because um, Alito and Thomas have been chastened by their recent controversies about ethics? Is it because although they're not chastened, Gorsuch and Barrett are no longer that interested in being aligned with them and have moved back to Kavanaugh and Roberts? Is it because just the mix of cases they took this year was always going to be a little more, a little better for the chief justice than uh, the cases they took last year, right? I mean, a a term with Dobbs is just different than a term with an affirmative action case because- Term with Dobbs and a leak about Dobbs. Exactly. Um, So I I just don't think we we can know. And I'm generally not a fan of this sort of who has influence on the court. At the end of the day, look, it's nine people. They each have one vote. Of course, the chief has a little bit more juice than everyone else because he is automatically the senior justice in if he is in the majority coalition and he can give himself the opinions and then craft them a little bit. But at the end of the day, I, I don't know. I, I don't find this game to be I don't find the the, the game to be worth the candle um, uh, very much here. And you could easily imagine the court swinging right back to the right again um, based on the, 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 the case mix and one case the court's going to decide next year is about whether domestic, uh, you know, whether uh, individuals who have been uh, credibly accused or I think convicted of domestic violence can uh, can can bear arms, which is going to be the biggest Second Amendment decision since uh, the recent Bruin case. You can imagine a hyper originalist Thomas, you know, ultra Second Amendment case in which we're going, oh, man, the chief justice has lost it again. And it just kind of goes back and forth. Yeah, I think that's right. I think it's again. And also time will reveal much more. As always, you don't really know until the, the dust has settled a lot more than it has within the last nine days since we began to talk about this. Well, Alan, thank you. You've been a terrific guest as always. Um, I, I think this was a really lovely bookend to where we started last fall. Uh, if you're willing, maybe we'll keep doing this periodically. What's the next term look like? I'm already picking the cases and that uh, gun control case is going to be the moot court for my second amendment course next year uh this has been a fascinating conversation but unfortunately we are out of time on this morning thanks again alan for sharing your expertise you've been a terrific guest uh this concludes our edition of public policy this week again we're on kymn radio am 1080 fm 95.1 each friday morning from 10 to 11 Uh, Tell your family and friends about our show, Public Policy This Week. We want this program to serve as a catalyst for important and meaningful, in-depth conversations about public policy challenges and opportunities. Together, we can seek comprehensive solutions to the many challenges that we face in our society if we're informed and thoughtful about how we do so. Have a good day, everyone. Take care. You've been listening to Public Policy This Week. Tune in every Friday morning at 10 a.m. for more conversation with policy experts. Remember, this show can be found on your favorite podcast platform or stream it from kymnradio.net.